Hello. So, I'm going to be talking yet again about violence. Given the increase in white nationalist violence lately, and how the Buffalo shooting was inspired specifically by the so-called Great Replacement Theory, so often promoted by Tucker Carlson, I want to touch upon where violent extremism comes from, or at least where it can come from. It's easy to look at extremist violence and say, take away whatever gives it life, you know, that's sensible. However, it's a little more complicated than shifting around your schedule to find some work-life balance or something like that. So on this podcast, I might have already mentioned the marketing slogan, it's the sizzle, not the steak, indicating that simple, attractive images are often more eye-catching or instantly appealing and therefore more likely to draw somebody in. However, that's never intended to say that details are bad, and this is yet another attempt to remind people that life is more complicated than some bumper sticker slogan. One of the clearest goals of the media industrial complex is to help people define their identity in the simplest terms and to put us in our place. It's why you'll always find a list of things not to say. And I want to be clear here. I'm not saying all political correctness is bad or all political correctness is good, all right? In fact, my point is actually basically the opposite of that. Sometimes instead of trying to view things in the simplest terms, we should try to take the longer way around when possible, and I think it often is possible. When a horrible event occurs, the first question asked is usually reflective of a snap judgment and a knee-jerk reaction based on the appearance of identity and whatever baggage we throw onto that identity. That's why when some people hear of a terrorist attack, they might ask, are they Muslim? Then, of course, one might naturally assume that the person stereotyping Muslims must be a right-winger, so that person will be throwing a whole added layer of political traits and identifiers on top of the initial issue, and it just becomes this bubbling, toxic stew of divisiveness and chaos. Or is it divisiveness? I've heard that word pronounced differently, but I'm getting sidetracked here. I don't know if this phenomenon can be totally eradicated, you know, all of these knee-jerk reactions and assumptions, but I do think we can probably cut down on it a little bit. And who knows, maybe dumb little podcasts like mine can play a small role in such a task. In the case of the Buffalo, New York shooter, we know exactly what he said his motives were, and we even know the fiend, the miscreant, had done some reconnaissance on the area. So it was like a professional planned attack, at least uh, to the extent that he was capable of doing so. And the terrorist had perceived it almost as a war operation. We also know he was inspired by the Great Replacement Theory, which is a conspiracy theory. And of course, that this very idea, this white nationalist talking point, has been mainstreamed by people like Fox News' Tucker Tucker Carlson. And I stumbled saying his name because I don't like the guy. Um, Probably. Um, Maybe I just couldn't say his name right because of the uh, arrangement of my sentences, but I I think it's 
clear that I don't like him. But anyway, uh, the, the shooter seemed to be a loner who probably stayed to himself and certainly didn't conform to a pluralistic view of society. I have learned after years and years of studying far-right personalities, as well as what might be called relatively ordinary conservatives, that they view the rejection of pluralism in whole or in part as a form of rebellion because they are resistant to pressure from others. And the far right has certainly promoted that angle, which I would consider highly phony in addition to, you know, being wrong and everything. And uh, it ends up making an extremist hateful idea seem cool if you can, you know, depict it as rebellious instead of like stupid and fraudulent. So they've actually done pretty well at, you know, making these kind of beliefs seem like they're, you know, some sort of cool rebellious thing. And to a large degree, I think liberals themselves have sort of played into their hands. For example, I think liberals and even some leftists seem to denigrate the prepper lifestyle or the survivalist lifestyle as being stupid or backward, whereas some, you know, might see it as practical and down to earth and, uh, of course, a little bit cool or whatever. And uh, I wouldn't necessarily even pair it with any specific, you know, ideology or messaging. To me, the idea of, you know, being able to survive in some sort of cataclysmic event is actually sort of important. So the, the way it's been politicized, um, even though it's understandable to some extent because you've got a lot of right-wing militia types, I think it can be sort of harmful. However, I mean, on the flip side, there is a reason those stereotypes exist. And we've seen that if you pair survivalist ideas with neo-fascist ones, and uh, you can have a sort of army of brown shirts, ideologically driven, and perhaps even well-trained, and maybe even with enough members with actual links to military and police departments and related training and equipment. So liberals scoffing at the idea of survival, survivalism and, uh, you know, that whole group are kind of giving, you know, these people the finger. And of course, they might want to give the middle finger right back. Um, but not all preppers are actually even like that. And I would say some elements of the prepper lifestyle are probably good in moderation, as I've already kind of said. In fact, there are liberal and leftist preppers out there too, believe it or not. And I think it's about time more people understand that and maybe stop oversimplifying the whole prepper thing as just some right-wing phenomena, because it's not. And, you know, I'm just using that as an example. Uh, I think it's a relevant example because, hey, I live in Michigan. We've got the militia that seems to be mostly downstate, but, you know, they're they're probably operating throughout the state. And you've got these militia-type groups throughout the country, actually. Of course, the links between militia lifestyles and law and order all become a real mess, too, because a lot of these far-right racist gangs also have criminal histories. Still, when you're loyal to some race war idealism, plenty of people are willing to look the other way when it comes to 
your own violent history or your history of selling and using drugs, maybe alcoholism, theft, you know, beating a wife or girlfriend or whatever else might be there that, you know, ordinary society would tend to denigrate to some degree. Indeed, when you look at it, you can find plenty of far-right people out there who actively use drugs, and they do so without recognizing the contradiction between supporting a greater right-wing movement that has been waging a war on drugs over the years. So, I mean, there is that contradiction. To some, these contradictions just do not matter. They somehow don't enter into these people's brains. What matters is the element of individual rebellion against what is considered the liberal elites. And that could include rejecting elements of a pluralistic society and conversation, or of course, it could lead to actual violent attacks, as we have seen. So all of the uh, hypocrisies among conservatives don't matter nearly as much as that perception, that feeling that the rebelling and the idea and intoxicating emotion of being special, you know, being great. And as I said, when liberals, Democrats, progressive, leftists, whatevers, fail to recognize many of these dynamics, they're failing to stop some of these dangerous connections from being made. Not everyone who joins an extremist organization was originally into that sort of thing. In fact, it can take an entire media climate to get people to look at atrocities and say, hey, there's nothing wrong with that. Unfortunately, such a climate exists out there, and it has for a very long time, even before there was this thing we call the internet and social media. It's not quite a new normal for some extremists to be out there attempting to start a race war, nor should it be seen as somehow uniquely meaningful that Trump lost to Biden in 2020. That does not mean white nationalism has completely gone away, even though Trump did in fact embolden it during his administration. We should always recognize that the potential for backsliding into some violent extremism is there. It's pretty much like a crazy drunk man who says he wants to start a war just because he drank too much. You know, it doesn't really mean anything, does it? at first, but what if that drunk guy starts throwing his fists at you or, you know, somebody you care about? Well, it probably no longer quite seems like something you can shrug off. Another way to look at it is this. We have to constantly be on guard. Frankly, I don't need U.S. officials to point out that lone wolf extremists are out there or even, or even organized gangs of neo-fascists. Forgetting about what might be the signature mistake of some of these crusty old Bidenites who just want society to return to normal under the same old corporate control. I say forget about that. Instead, we need to start materially improving people's lives much better, in addition to consistently debunking white nationalist talking points and not looking the other way you know, when others bring the topic up, or when these, you know, tragedies happen. And we need to get rid of these, you know, aspects of the two-tier justice system and start punishing far-right extremists 
in government who clearly have links to these hate groups and who are clearly coordinating with them to implement a neo-fascist and to some degree theocratic state. All of these things are linked and they need to be addressed as such.